And to remove noise. Removing noise? We're already live. Ah, shoot. <laughs> We're going to have to cut out the beginning. So so I was I was on Hover.com today. Um, I like to browse domain names just for fun. This is not sponsored, by the way, for anyone listening. Um, <laughs> InBev.beer is available for like 15 bucks. So like Anheuser-Busch InBev is the largest beer company in the world. I thought it was super trolly to buy InBev.beer, build like this super cool website and community and like have everybody think that it's some like super hipster arm of InBev that's trying to reinvent the brand in like the craft beer age Um, and like have everybody think that it's real and then have it not be and then sell it to InBev once it's a really successful thing. (laughs) It's a great idea. I heard that someone bought Ebola.com and it won. The outbreak happened. They sold it for some like unbelievable sum. It was at least in the tens of thousands. Part of my brain wants to say sixty thousand. Part wants to say five hundred thousand. So I'm gonna avoid the figure. But what what they sell it for? Like, I mean, who bought it and why? I'm pretty sure it was whoever was fighting Ebola, like Uh, whatever agencies or whatever. That would make sense. But yeah, it was apparently an example of predatory market tactics. Mm. What do you think about like just domain names in general? Do you think they matter for a business? Because there's a lot of differing opinions on this. Um, I honestly don't have enough experience in it, but I rarely, if ever, go to the search bar and type in directly the name of a like a website anymore. Right. So I wonder if they're becoming less and less relevant the longer that, or the more that we start using optimized engines and um, accessing the internet via social media and things like that. Yeah. No. I mean, I would tend to agree with you. I mean, I mean, especially with how how excellent the Google predictive search has become. Um, I just don't see the need. I mean, it, it was crazy. I mean, it's just like I'm, you know, watching the so so I like the Joe Rogan like clips channel. So I'll like find a lot of stuff through there. And then if I'm interested in the clip, I'll go watch the full one. So it's like, I was watching the clip on my iPhone, right. Of, of Danica Patrick and Joe Rogan. And then I came over to my desktop and just opened Google, you know, open Google Chrome and start typing in the box. And I type Joe and it autofills to Joe Rogan, Danica Patrick. Whoa. And that's scary. No, it's fucking awesome. It's like that predictive search has become so effective that, I mean, I, I think for, for businesses in particular, it's the greatest thing ever because it's like, yeah, you might be paying a slight tax to Google if you're buying the AdWords to have your stuff show up first or to have your have your, your name show up in the, in the predictive algorithms and have them indexed properly and all that sort of thing. But it's, it's, it's incredible. And I think especially once that, start, that stuff's, once voice search really starts to take off, um, it's going to be even more um, more important that those those autofill algorithms are are spot on. So, like, I'm happy to see the progress. This would, I mean, it might be a subtle change in topic, but the the dark side of this is that we're getting algorithmically catered into worldviews and boxes. And then, what is the cliche word for this? Oh, echo chambers keeps right. getting around. But like my YouTube feed now consists of nobody that I disagree with politically or philosophically and so on, or people who I just sort of disagree with. 
Uh, yeah, but I don't know that that's the algorithm's fault. I think that's people's fault. It's like if you're if you're narrow narrow minded enough to not listen to the words of those who you disagree with, then like I I don't I don't blame YouTube or Facebook for that. It's the algorithm will show you things that you're going to react to because that's how they make their money. Um, so if you will react to and engage with you know, a, a, a myriad of different thinkers, the ones that you disagree with, ones that you agree with. Um, it'll show you those things. It's not just that it shows you things you agree with, it's things that you engage with. Um, so, I, so I would, you know, say that maybe, and this is, this is an interesting thought, maybe in the digital age of these, you know, ta you know algorithmically tailored presentations of, of things, that there's a certain level of virtue that exists now that perhaps wasn't necessary in the past um, to be able to engage with multiple different kinds of viewpoints, um, especially those that you do inherently disagree with and, and, and things like that. What, what, what do you think about that? Kind of this emergence of perhaps a new virtue in the digital age? I, I think I disagree with your description of it because I think that it's very hard to start new content once you've been following the same set of people and even if you did start new content it's hard to get a recommendation from someone else that this is like a credible youtube channel or a credible source but i think i mean i don't look at the advertising model of facebook and youtube to be the optimal way in which to convey media. I mean, the other reason for that is, as Tristan Harris outlines, is that these algorithms are built to keep you on the platform for as long as they can. Right. It's not just the echo chamber effect, but it's like an addict, it's, it's designed to be an addictive mechanism, the next video, the next video, or the next uh, thing on your newsfeed, and to get you to scroll and continue scrolling. They're designed to capture your time for advertisers. Right. And it's very easy if the part of the brain that it's acting on is the sort of addictive, repetitive part of the brain. Um, and then you get sucked into a sort of echo chamber effect. It's very, it's very difficult to step out of that because then you're not associating YouTube or Facebook with critical thought. You're associating it with a kind of mental disengagement. Interesting. That's the real, that's the real danger of it. My, I think my own personal experience of this though would be, would tell me a little bit different. It's like, my my first foray really into i mean i was involved in youtube for a long time with um Yu-Gi-Oh, right so i would watch card box openings and i would watch duels and all of these things on 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 youtube and that was kind of my, the extent of my participation on the platform but then eventually i eventually i got back into it and you know it started off with you know watching obscure academic lectures on the speculative realist movement and and somehow i started somehow milo yiannopoulos came into my into my my sphere and i, I think actually it was not ever a recommend recommendation i think i saw it um i looked at, i looked up the dangerous faggot because dr dwyer told me about it i'm like that's crazy i gotta go look this up um and so i got you know kind of sucked into milo really and interested in in the guy's story not so much his his proc like provocativeness um but i was interested in those really human times when he was talking about the relationship between his lifestyle and his religion um he, he showed kind of a, a depth to himself that i thought was pretty remarkable um but eventually it was those milo videos that led me to ben shapiro who is 
yeah. um, from an academic point of view, you know, they're not the same at all, right? It's, you know, one is a provocateur with some, with some statistics behind his points. The other is a very philosophical individual who thinks deeply about problems. And Shapiro led me to uh, Peterson, right? And through Peterson, I discovered Rogan and Rubin and all of these other people um, mm -hmm. who, who I would argue really challenged the way that I thought about things. It's like, if you would have given the name Sam Harris to me at the beginning of college or in high school, I would have been like, Oh, that atheist fuck. Um, <laughs> but now it's like, you know, yeah, I disagree. I think that he's wrong about a lot of things, but at the end of the day, like I love listening to him because I think he's really insightful on, on certain topics. Um, I think he has a really, he has a pragmatic approach to things that is, you know, awesome and so frankly i don't know that i agree with the narrative of of the echo chambers i think those echo chambers are ones you create for yourself not the ones that the algorithm serves you up that that's true although i think the example you're using is the exception not the rule um because the intellectual dark web is the exception and not the rule um it's funny that you told the story that way because i actually started in the new atheist movement um, watching all of their videos and then sam harris started a podcast and then from there he went on the young turks and basically that interview is what made dave dave rubin leave the young turks and then um from dave rubin to uh jordan peterson and shapiro so it's funny how we uh we went from the left and the right into the same circle yeah that, that is that is fascinating so you think that it's something particular to these people and the algorithm serves them up together because it's found an interesting slew of of the population that is capable of thinking and well, then thus groups these things together i think these people because the movement so i, I want to say this point before you begin like the the my my argument is that the intellectual dark web is only an amalgamation as the re, as a result of the youtube algorithms it's not like these guys sat together in a room and decided we're all going to start talking about something really important namely free speech it's that they all started talking about it and the algorithm served up this cast of characters to people that were willing to consume that content. Yeah, that is true. That is true. It's sort of as if like if someone was watching Ben Shapiro's college lectures, you could end up on a Douglas Murray video um, on immigration. And from there you could end up with Douglas Murray on Dave Rubin. And from Rubin, you can get to the Weinsteins. So there's a there is an algorithmic connection between sort of the topics they started touching on, mainly the aversion to identity politics, and it it sort of created the um, the feed associating all of them. Right. So, so I guess uh, I'll concede your point only on the intellectual dark web. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't really. Well, like, this is maybe interesting. I, I guess I was wrong a little bit when I said that I wasn't involved. I think. When I was living in Paris, I discovered Secular Talk, that channel. Uh, yeah. That was right at the beginning of the Justice Democrats movement. So it was like during primary season for the 2016 election was when I was living in France and the year leading up to that. Um, and for some reason, like, and th this is me we're talking about. It's like I, at the time, I believed that I was the most conservative person that I knew. And yet I just couldn't get enough of Kyle Kalinske on <laughs> Secular talk. I just loved listening to what he had to say. I mean, I was always really annoyed when you know he would talk about like ostentatiously 
Islam and Christianity as if they weren't equal. And yet, you know, there was just, there's weirdness there. It's like somebody uses Christianity as a defense for something and they're, they're a bad guy. But if somebody uses Islam for a defense for something and they're a good guy. So I was annoyed by that. But for the most part, I was really just intrigued um, by him and the whole, really the whole Bernie Sanders movement. Um, I, I can't say that I followed Kalinsky into any other, what I would consider, you know, left or far left, um, you know, content, but, but I mean, I think that was really the beginning of my, of my YouTube political journey. So I'm, I'm, uh, again, I don't know what that says about me as a person or whether or not the algorithm just figured out what made me tick. And that was in-depth conversations about things and served them up to me once I came back to the States. I don't know. Well, I think the other thing too, is that our politics has to a large extent outlived its labels. Um, the descriptions that we grew up with of left and right, and then the libertarian right, um, they don't map onto beliefs in a straightforward way like they used to. Right. Be like a column of 10 bullet points that made you more left or more right. And then like if you had, you know, four and six of those, you would call yourself an independent. But I think uh, one of the major reasons that we're getting this confluence, um, al algorithms or not, is just how strange our politics has become. Yeah. You can't follow one voice anymore. I don't think you can. There's no um, fundamental agreement on where we're drawing the lines. Right. I mean, kind of pivoting maybe a little bit. Have you been following what's been going on with Trump and the Putin thing? And A, a little bit. Just I, I heard the Hero show on it. And then I heard, um, I think I was watching Fox News, which is a super rare occasion. But <laughs> what did Ben have to say about the whole thing? I mean, I, I can't, I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know I got into a little bit of a texting spat with a good friend of mine. Um and, you know, he was kind of complaining about, oh, this is sort of treasonous and yada, yada, yada. And I, I said something along the lines of, you know, geez, like these Russian people bought a few ads on Facebook and <laughs> we're freaking out about it. It's like the United States is involved in, they, they, the United States literally actively positions itself in every single conflict and election in the world and attempts to sway it in a way that's most in their favor. A really public example of this was Barack Obama getting up and telling the French not to elect Marine Le Pen. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, why is that okay? But some Russian, you know, keyboard warriors spewing out a bunch of fake news and content and then figuring out how to use Facebook to make people like it and share it. Um, yeah. Is that really a bad thing? And then, well, and obviously there's worse stuff than that too. There's money laundering, there's hacking into the DNC and all of this other stuff. But it's like, at the end of the day, the, the voters were the ones who went out to the polls and either showed up or didn't show up where they needed to. Yeah. there. I mean, it's a very weird confluence of events. I think, I mean, I, I kind of like the way that Shapiro is looking at it, which is what Trump said is like incredibly stupid among a long list of incredibly stupid things that Trump said. But what matters is our policy towards Russia, not what he says in a press conference. Um, and I, I'm just amazingly surprised that every week we find the a reason to freak out about what Trump said. And nobody seems to get that what he says is in no relation 
uh, or almost no relation to how he governs or how his cabinet governs. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me that no one's sort of caught on to this game. And my prediction is that Trump is playing this Russia thing the way he is because he knows that the Mueller investigation is not going to find anything on him or his close associates. And he's going to, or he's trying to turn up the left to this, you know, he's treasonous, this is treason, he should be impeached. So that when it comes out that there was no wrongdoing as far as collusion is concerned, they're going to look like asshats. That's my prediction. Do you think, that, you think that Trump is that smart and that? I mean, because there's that, like I, I think there's an honest division among respectable people about whether or not Trump is literally just an idiot or says his idiotic things for the purposes of his own ends. I, I mean, I used to just think he was an idiot, but eventually. It it seems um it seems a bit too good, he, like for instance he's he set up like a, a hundred things that would be uh, a scandal for any other president, but that he says something timed in such a way with the news cycle that just overshadows the last thing. I would be very surprised if he wasn't playing a at least somewhat intelligent game with this. Um, I don't think that what we see going on and what we see him say and the way he says it couldn't, it, uh, he had to have thought it out. I don't see it. I don't see him being a genius level player, but I see him coming from WWE and branding and he, he understands the psychology of a crowd. And Right. So I, it's not like, it's not like he's playing chess and everybody's playing checkers, but he's certainly playing Chinese checkers. Yes, that's that's at least what I think at this moment. But do you have a different take on it? No, I mean, I I, I kind of want. I would like to say that I simply don't care at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, I I voted for Donald Trump, and I'm not ashamed of that fact. And um, while there are reasons to maybe not be as excited about the the most recent uh, Kavanaugh appointment to the Supreme Court, he did exactly what he said he was going to do in the election regarding the Supreme Court, and frankly. That's what I vote on. Um, you know, I thought Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were were excellent additions to the court. Um, I think that the the Republican Senate under Mitch McConnell they they you know basically took a million dollars and put it on red two in a, in a roulette table and they fucking won. Uh, and and that's going to go down in history as probably the you know the single most important you know, maybe not the most good or who, I don't care what your viewpoint is. It's going to be one of the single most important, um, you know, things that happened in the early part of the 21st century, uh, at least from the American government's perspective. It's like they, they bet heavily on Trump winning and on Trump appointing conservative justices to the court. And he did both of those things. And you might consider both of those a long shot. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so anyway, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, I, what, what do I think about Trump, the Mueller investigation? Is he an idiot? Is he not? You know, I think there's an interesting uh, parallel between the way that tw uh, Donald Trump uses Twitter and the way that Elon Musk uses Twitter. Um, I mean, Musk got in trouble, quote unquote, from one of his investors recently who asked him to stop tweeting, you know, boisterous stuff because uh, it was upsetting investors and potentially hurting the share price, which is an absurd claim to make, by the way. But 
um, there's a, there's something unique about that personality and like just how they, they kind of amass these, these, what I would call these real social movements, I guess. And they, they work social media effectively and, and they accomplish their goals. So I, I would say, yeah, there's probably some planning involved. Um, there's also probably just a, a bit of what you were talking about with the coming from a really strong uh, branding background, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would say that's probably where I stand on Trump currently. Yeah, I think the most fascinating thing that the left doesn't seem to understand about Trump is that if they just didn't overreact to what he says, or if they just stopped reacting to what he said, especially in the media, and just presented what he said or what he tweeted in an objective, newsworthy way without the commentary and panels, um, <laughs> that it wouldn't work anymore. Like the whole right. point of what, the, at least the game as far as I see it is, it is the way that he talks and engages with uh, Twitter and the media is to get a reaction. Yeah. And the reaction is what drives his support because oftentimes you're getting the reaction from the people that you know, traditional conservative citizens hate and they're having the strongest overreaction. Someone like uh, Rachel Maddow, for instance. Right. So I don't, I don't understand why they haven't changed their tactics from outrage to, I mean, my recommendation would be objectivity, but anything else. Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the, the left still believes for some reason, even though they've been, I would say pretty successful in alternative forms of media, um, the mainstream left, which has not at all been in, in that alternative media game, they still believe that the news cycle will dictate the public thought. But it's like, the, this is the thing about the digital age. This is the thing about the information age. It's you have access to any piece of information that you could possibly want. And even if you don't tap into that ability to make those searches and do that research for yourself, it suddenly takes the perception that a, that a media personality gives to you and turns it down from what used to be maybe an eight or a nine and takes it all the way down to a one. It's like, I really don't care what you on CNN have to say because if I wanted to, I could go look it up. Yeah, and your commentary on it not very important and right. reporting on it was you know the lead was about 30 seconds now we're gonna have 10 minutes of panels screaming at each other it's yeah. like those it's panels like, are obnoxious they're i don't get like do you know when that ever entered like the modern political media i don't i would suspect that it started like its roots would be in the early to mid 90s um but yeah, because you had, uh, what was it? You had William F. Buckley that had firing line, but that was very sort of academic political conversations. And I think that was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the more that the technology has pressed these large media companies, the more they've had to appeal to this boxing ring sort of depiction of politics. Right. And that's what drives or did for some time drive a lot of clicks. And I think that's also, they're probably being pinched by the digital age. And that's why uh, they're doubling, tripling and quadrupling down on outrage because they can't get the revenue without uh, the world burning.
That would make sense. Do you think that we are just kind of scratching the surface on the kinds of changes that the internet will have on our society, or do you think we're going to reach kind of an equilibrium state here in the next, you know, 10, 20 years? It's kind of hard to say. I think the, and I haven't thought this idea all the way through, but I think the thing I'm most worried about is what these forms of media um, and the technology itself, having a phone in your pocket, is doing to our brains. Um, it's very scattered. It's very yeah, um, notification, notification. And I'm just wondering how the human psyche is affected by the digital age more than um, some specific aspect of it influencing politics or society or something like that. I'm wondering what the the actual screen time and the way that we use them on average is doing to attention span, mood, our perceptions of the world, our perceptions of other people, and so on. Yeah, no, that's so. So you're saying that you don't you don't really have a of an opinion on what the future is like. You're just kind of really concerned about what's going on right now with it. Yeah, I I'm really concerned that no one seems to know what's going on right now. Right. <laughs> Do you remember when the Olympics came out and there was kind of a big thing? I think it was at the opening ceremonies that like they weren't called screen time addiction centers, but it was like video game addiction centers. Like were one of the charities that were really being heavily promoted at the opening of the Olympics uh, in Korea. Um, Real. That's, that's interesting, right? I mean, obviously, um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, so I'm gonna I'm gonna probably weave whack through the weeds here a little bit, but so so I, I listen to to Gary Vaynerchuk a lot. I I really I love his content. Um, fascinating stuff. And one of the things that he's really big on is the advent of real voice media, like making a return. You know, he he was talking about how, um, you know, the radio was incredible because people had such imaginations because they were just listening to it and then they were thinking about it and. You know, now with things like Alexa and Google Home, it's like we can, if we can re reestablish that kind of audio imagination, but now have the ability to interact with that audio live um, mm -hmm. through an Alexa or a Google Home, it like kind of untaps a, a future. I wonder if, ironically, that kind of that kind of media, you know, a, like a totally different voice-driven um, digital age could maybe remediate some of the, the negative effects that screen time certainly do have on the brain. I mean, I think that it's pretty much objectively true that screen time decreases gray matter, right? I, I don't know that for a fact, but I mean, I think I've read that. Um, so any thoughts on that? Well, I, I guess my line on this that I've developed, I've had... Um a few friends who are big into the micro brew scene in Colorado and took me to my first ones, um, allow me to get this app called untapped and untapped is, um, you save rate and write descriptions for beers you try. So you can basically catalog, um, like you can catalog. Some of my friends are in like the 450 different unique beers or more than that. It's nuts. Wow. Uh, but you rate them, catalog them and so on. And I think the line that I'm at least hypothesizing right now is that digital technology should be used to enhance our contact with um, the world, uh, the outside world, and not to allow us to run away from it. And I think that at least is like my preliminary thought on 
the the bad influence and the good influence of technology. The good influence of technology is something that brings us closer to the world, uh, closer to other people, and the bad is the repetitive scrolling, the screen time, the um, I don't want to feel my emotions right now. I want to look at my phone and just get lost in it. Um, so that's at least sort of a an initial thought I had. Have you had a different perception well, of that? Do you, do you think that kind of thing is already beginning? Like I'm thinking about some like lifestyle brands, you know, it's like going to the farmer's market on Saturday and eating fresh guacamole that's organic is like the rage right now. <laughs> um, and the reason that's the rage is because that kind of stuff is like really popular on social media, right? And it's catching on, but it's like ultimately it's like the media is driving you out to go to a farmer's market and eat some guacamole. Um, and, and I think that that's a real trend. And I think that what I just named was a pretty superficial example of it. Um, maybe a better one what is like the, um, the organization of the Arab Spring on Facebook, uh, which I mean, you know, different topic altogether, but the, the, the fact that these digital platforms can be used to, to connect people in the real world, um, which maybe like that there's undertapped potential there currently, but I, I'm really bullish on that in the future. I mean, I'll, I'll share a little bit of a, so, I mean, without going into too much detail, right. It's like, I, I, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm starting a racing promotions company. Um, I'm, you know, super into racing now, but the only reason I'm super into racing is because there are digital platforms that exist that allow me to consume, you know, F1 races and Indy cars and, and, uh, you know, even dirt track ovals and all this other stuff that, I mean, there was simply no way that I, I, as a suburban white kid could never have really been into this stuff. Um, but now it's like, I can, uh, and, and I think that, motorsports in general is, is about to experience a, a J curve if, if it can leverage these social platforms and take them to the next level. And I think you could see a complete resurgence of, you know, the Saturday night fairgrounds kind of racing. Um, and that's only going to happen because you effectively digitally market the fact that you're having a race and this is what the purse is and people get interested and people come out to watch the race and then people get in, you know interested in building cars and getting taking their go-kart onto the track you know um actually um i'm just reminded of it this is a topic we talked about in dr polt's philosophy of technology class um essentially is is technology merely a tool and it's how it's used that matters or does it have its own kind of um, telos that it moves us towards, whether positive or negative. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I, I tend to take the Heideggerian position on this, and that's that. You know, technology is really interesting. I don't know. I don't want to say put a value judgment on it yet. It's interesting because it reveals the gravitas of human nature. It's like all of a sudden, the river takes on a whole new meaning when you put a hydroelectric dam on it, right? It's like it becomes river gets reduced to power source, right? Uh -huh. and technology that, that in frame it's, it's, it's an inframing, like the, the perspective with which we receive the river has become inframed by this new paradigm. And at first it's just a river and it's like, well, that's not so bad, but then you start to view like people in this same kind of mechanistic way, like good example, like a, for my for my startup accelerator program that I'm in currently, I had to go solicit a thousand responses to a survey, 
And so it's like, yeah, I was up on social media and I was posting and trying to get some, you know, some organic um, responses and I got maybe 200, but those other 800, it's like I paid, you know, 10 cents for human beings to go take the survey. And I got the other 800 that way. And it's like, I don't even think about the people on the other end of that. Um, and, and that's exactly what Heidegger warned about. It's that technology has the ability to turn humans into human capital, right? And then once you start inframing other humans as merely human capital or means to an end that, that, um, that means to an end, you then start to become a means to your own ends. And you lose your status as human being because you're simply a resource at that point. Um, Definitely. Which is not to say that technology is a bad thing, right? It's good insofar as it reveals how important we are, right? It reveals how important it is that we don't reduce ourselves to resources. At the same time, I think there's room for the proper use of technology um, with, I mean, and, and obviously it's in the kind of the, the role of the of the person using the technology to not allow it to destroy them and to become just human capital. Yeah, and I think there's different models of technological use that represent both sides of that. But the the human capital point is what terrifies me the most about it. Like the um, ad revenue and driving clicks. Like we want to drive clicks here, or yeah, we want the most people to stay at this shopify site for as long as they can because the longer you stay on the site the more likely you are to order that kind of relationship is very alien to the relationship of the guy behind a retail counter explaining a product to you right uh, and it has much more to do with playing on human psychology than or the corner store where the guy not only is selling you the coffee but he knows you and your wife and your kids and your neighbors and like when something's wrong he can give you advice and maybe do a favor for you yeah and i don't know it's definitely not one of these equations that you can go you know technology has had a net negative or a net positive benefit and i think we're sort of stuck in the opacity of technology given its rate of um its rate of innovation but also its rate of mass acceptance in our lifetime we went from the flip phone to the iphone and then eight versions of it and we've lived through all of that and i don't think we have a picture from the present that we will have uh, eventually looking back on what this all actually means right no i mean and that's true and and i tend to take the kind of the positive positive bullish uh, attitude towards it that that we are going to kind of get our acts together and that technology is going to drive us into the real world and maybe that's overly optimistic um but i mean like i said with the racing example it's like all of a sudden there are there are things in the real world that i can be interested in now that mm-hmm. i couldn't have been before and you know it's so intense it's like i almost bought tickets to a dirt track race today it's like <laughs> I didn't grow up around that. I'm not, I was never interested in that, but it's like all of a sudden I have, I have an outlet that I could, that I could go to. And the internet is the, is could have done that for me. Right. Um, and, and maybe just the, 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 the case study of one is not, not good enough to, to establish the overall trend, but I, I tend to toe that positive line. And I'm, I'm also thinking given that description, which I think is, um, useful that maybe the fact that everything is sort of political nowadays everything's become political um 
you know, sex has become political, uh, that this sort of political polarization we're seeing is sort of the lens in which I'm viewing technology in a negative way. And I'm discounting all of these positive applications that are a lot quieter given just the media I tend to consume. So it could be a, a political polarization bias affecting maybe how we're looking at technology and it actually in a lot of ways is enhancing our lives and our connection to the world. So this is tangential, but I think it's worth bringing up. So, you know, I'm, I, I think the reason of my bullishness is at the back of my mind, I really do see the seeds of a truly decentralized world and economy kind of waiting to spring forth. So, you know, just as a quick example of what the future could be like, you know, imagine you've got a 3d printer in your house and you basically make in your 3d printer everything it is that you need for your daily life whether that's your forks and your spoons or your bowls or you know the parts to your car or whatever um and you know you your your drone goes and flies and gets your shipments for you and and all of these things and and it's it's almost as if technology and you know decentralized currencies etc etc all of these things kind of allow the human who is living in kind of this decentralized world where mercantilism or the need to go buy and sell things for one's subsistence as opposed to producing them all for themselves, mercantilism fails in in a truly decentralized economy. You become able to subsist yourself. Um, and I think because that's possible and because that's only enabled by, you know, really um, you know, great leaps in technology, you know, not only the blockchain, but also rapid manufacturing and, and even some of just the, the freedoms of information that exist only because of the internet, the, the radical exposure that we have, the Me Too movement, like you can't get away with anything. Um, the, 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 the foundation for a truly decentralized world is there and i believe that at the center of the decentralized world is the individual human and his or her freedom um so that could be the reason for my bullishness and i'm interested to kind of get your take on i know that was a lot but no it's i the idea that came to my head was um that given the ability to sort of um create your own reality in that way um, in a completely decentralized system that human beings might prefer safety and pleasure over the kind of pains and struggles that a more centralized world um, brings that allows for meaning and individual purpose. And I'm sort of thinking of, you know, I have to wake up and drive 20 minutes to my job and I have to deal with the perceptions of my managers and customers and I have to deal with a variety of issues that arrive through that and it's not always like more often than not it's not fun but in the more centralized system um i can't choose necessarily to stay in bed all day which would be i think an objectively worse thing for me so my fear is that kind of human freedom would lead to a kind of degradation because human beings given the choice um most of them probably wouldn't choose uh to spend their time doing the maximally meaningful things like you know, studying literature or learning about history and that they would sort of devolve into virtual reality and pornography and things like that. And maybe that's an overly cynical view of what could happen in a decentralized system, but I'd say that was my initial fear. 
See, that's that's really interesting because I take the opposite approach. It's like I I see it. It's like well, once you've got time for all of these things, I mean, and, and here's the important thing to remember. It's like when when culture first began to form and agriculture became a real thing, you know, in the agricultural revolution. Um, what happened? You know, it's like the the priests and the the academics became a thing. They weren't a thing. Everybody was a farmer or a hunter before that. And the leisure that was created by the division of labor and frankly by the class system enabled this whole new flourishing of religion and poetry and academic thought and art. Um, so why should we, you know, now that we're, we live in a world where almost everybody is basically confined to, you know, a nine to five job or something like it, or, you know, and, you know, you might even make the argument that in the white collar world, it's like you're on 24 seven. It's like, if I get an email and don't respond to it in 15 minutes, in some cases, it's like, I'll get in trouble. Right. Um, it's almost like we, we've kind of reverted back to that. Everybody's a farmer thing. And, um, with the leisure that could truly enter the world through, um, through a decentralized world, maybe we would see the flourishing of a society of painters and poets. Um, at least that's my, my optimistic view of what would happen. It's like a very Greek view. It's the, the, the contemplation and creation of uh, immortal beauty and the contemplation of being itself as being the highest pleasures a human being can experience. Right. I feel like you pulled that out of Aristotle. And, you know, I, I well, think, I pulled it out of an example from history, primarily. Yeah, oh, definitely. And I think I can be too cynical on these things and too wrapped up in them. Um, so I'm willing to be agnostic for the time being. But I think, I think you've got to, you've got to have balances. And I think the one mistake we could make, um, and this is sort of the conservative in me speaking, is that if we go into this future too quickly and with not enough precautions we could end up in a brave new world kind of scenario where everyone's sort of numbed by the best pharmaceuticals and experiencing the most pleasure with the you know the least objective meaning or purpose to their activities do you so think they, ai and its dangers plays a significant role in that um honestly i have no idea I remember in uh, philosophy of technology, one of the favorite things that I read is that we're uh, we're 20 years away from AI, and we have been for the last six decades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I think so. I mean, our models, and I think this is also what I was saying in the political sphere earlier, our models that we've created in the past, models of like communism and nationalism and capitalism and pure free markets and pure socialism, all of those structures are not going to be able to be applied uh, directly to whatever technological future we're moving into. And I think it's going to be very different kinds of models that, that um, become our way of life in the future. And I think that's the part that I'm worried about, is that we're not doing enough work on um, future creative ways of organizing people in their lives. And rather, we get kind of suspended in these prior categories. I think it was Thoreau, it might have been Thoreau. Who was Thoreau's friend? I think it was Emerson. 
has a great um, quote in the beginning of Nature and Walking about reinventing the future. Like, why are we beholden to these traditions and these gods and these things when we deserve better gods and better traditions for ourselves? And there's both, you know, a sort of hoorah revolutionary spirit in that, but then there's also the terror that you see with the, the gulags in uh, the Soviet Union or the gas chambers with uh, what comes from revolutionary spirits. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you're optimistic. That makes uh, at least one of us. Makes at least one of us. Well, it, it's, so one of the things that I, I've thought about, and, and, and maybe you were right earlier to peg me as an Aristotelian, because what I'm about to say is the most Aristotelian thing I've probably ever said. Um, I'm really not too worried about the advent of a general intelligence, because I think if we ever have a machine that can think, you know, what, what, what is it? How much faster is it than a human being? Is it like 10 uh, times faster? Yeah. 10 no, times. So, so, a, so, a, a, mach, a, a computer with the IQ of a human can think through the same number of problems, you know, that a, a human thinks in a year can think in 10,000 years worth in the same uh, amount of time. I actually heard 10,000 years in a week. 10,000 years in a week. Okay, well, well, whatever it is, my, my point is, if we ever arrive at that, at that point, I think the, the computer is going to just start thinking about the miracle of its own existence in the same way that, that humans glimpse in those most meaningful moments. And it's got, I, I think the most malicious thing a general artificial intelligence is ever going to do is hack into a data center so it has more processing power to contemplate its existence. <laughs> I'm talking like truly about the advent of Aristotle's God, right? It's like it's self-thinking thought and it doesn't know anything outside of itself. Yeah, there's a, a great documentary I just watched called The Visit, An Alien Encounter. And the whole documentary is filmed about what human beings would do if they encountered an intelligent alien species that landed on Earth. But the whole documentary is filmed as if you're the alien looking at humanity. And I think the thing that would be the strangest about the AI is its answer to the question, what is human being? Because we don't have an answer to that question. And it, it's, its way of thinking and its way of operating would be so alien to our perceptions of the world and the universe and existence that its conclusion about what we are, I think, is uh, the thing that I'm most interested in with the potential advent of AI. Mm. And I highly recommend that documentary. I thought it was amazing. That's fascinating. So maybe let's jump into the intelligent life question. Mm. Is it out there? According to people, there's simply too many galaxies and too many potential planets for it not to be out there. But I don't know if we know enough about the origins of life on Earth and then the statistical probability that life could emerge, even given the, what is it, there's a hundred billion galaxies and a hundred billion stars in each galaxy. So given that much math, how rare is it that life forms? And then on top of that, how rare is it that life doesn't go extinct before it evolves to become intelligent? And then even then, um, can you get a different kind of evolution not based on the kind of you know dna replication that we have 
Mm -hmm. So are there, are there different forms of evolution? Can things evolve differently than we did? Or do they require the same chemicals in this universe? There's so many unknown unknowns to trying to answer that question that I think um, it makes staring at the stars a lot of fun. It does. I, I love the way that you answered that question because I answer it in a completely different way, right? You, you, there's a thought that there's a thought that the emergence of of intelligent life or even life in in the first place is probabilistic, um, and I don't know that I buy that argument. So there's there's this philosopher out there. His name is Kenton Meassou. He's French. Um, he's one of the speculative realists, and he makes the really interesting claim that um, really the advent of life was something that was ex nihilo, right? It, it was a creation out of nothing, which is to say that there is no set of probable happenings or probable events in a materialistic world, like just the world of matter pr prior to life. There's no set of of possible things that could happen that could yield life. And yet it happened. It was an advent, ex nihilo. It came from nowhere. Um, and the same thing is true of living beings, right? There is, there's this world of living creatures and there's no set, predetermined set, and that's the important word. There's no predetermined set of possible outcomes um, that includes intelligent life. Intelligent life just happened in the context of life. Um, and th and this, this, this thought has really influenced my notion of event and you know you can apply that same kind of reasoning to a whole host of things that happen just on the in the individual level of a human being but even on you know kind of societal and global levels as well but my point is um i don't believe that it's simply a matter of there's a, a dice that has so many sides and i throw it so many times and i'm guaranteed to get that result eventually if I keep casting that dice. I think rather that that life, that rather what is happening is that, you know, to, to kind of personify the universe in a, in a way, you know, the universe is casting not a finite sided dice with a bunch of sides. It's casting an infinitely sided dice. And so there's no probability of it landing on any one of its sides, and yet it does. And when that happens, the Big Bang happens and the world of matter is born. And then <laughs> then it then it lands again and the world of life is born and then you cast it again and the world of thought is born and maybe it'll be cast eventually in the future and the world of justice is born right like this is this is the notion of his thought and i find it really compelling um so i want to make the argument that no i don't believe there's intelligent life out there um you know purely from this kind of approach to um to how i believe the structure of of you know, being is. I don't. I don't believe that being is probabilistic. Perhaps in the same way that the scientific method and and well, would would lead us to believe. You've got to you've got to take into account quantum physics and string theory there as well. Um, yeah, but, but they're probabilistic as well. That's what I meant. Yeah, it's like there's a probability of finding an electron at any point upon its wavelength. And it's yeah. Like, okay. And then you look, and the wave function collapses, and you find the the f you find the electron at certain places X number of times you replicate it, but there's always a predefined set of possibilities of where the electron is, right? Well, what if you opened the box and the electron was nowhere, right? That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Or instead of an electron, now it's a fucking tennis ball. <laughs> you know, that that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I think that that 
is that is what life happened. It's like, yeah, well, the electron could be anywhere from here to here upon its wavelength, and the probability of it being in the middle is something like 90%, and, you know, whatever. And you you look go and look for the electron, and you found a tennis ball. And and that was that was what the advent of life was like, and that was what the advent of thought was like, and that's what the advent of a you know of a world of justice could be like. Yeah, it it's um, I mean it's one of those things that I love hearing people speculate about, but I uh, hate speculating about. Um, but I I find it fascinating how far physics came in the twentieth century, and how we just got stopped at quantum physics um, to a large degree. But it's, I, I wonder how much an answer to that question would change how we understand who and what we are and how we live hmm. um, in the more pragmatic sense. If there was intelligent life out there and we knew it, how would that change our understandings of ourselves and our relationships with each other? And if there wasn't, and we were alone in the universe, how would that change the way we went and so on? Well, there, it's really interesting. You know, Thomas Aquinas speculated about this a little bit, um, which is crazy that in the 1200s they were thinking about aliens. But the, the, the question was, you know, a, a serious theological one. And it's like, well, what if there is non-human intelligent life out there somewhere in the universe? Did Christ die for them? Was, mm. was the question that Thomas Aquinas was trying to solve. And I think he answered it in two ways, and it's been a long time since I've read this, so I'm not entirely brushed up, but I think there's two possible answers. Either human nature is merely spirit united with body, spirit and matter, and therefore any intelligent life out there, assuming that intelligence is synonymous with spirit, um, shared nature with humanity and therefore with Christ, so yes, Christ died for them. The other way of answering the question is that um, there's nothing to say in divine revelation or in tradition that Christ's, the soul nature that Christ could reconcile to himself was that of human nature, and that he could also go to some far off planet and, and take their nature onto the divine person and die for their sins as well. Um, which, those are two really interesting ways of thinking about humanity's place in the cosmos, right? In, in, in the first hand, um, on the first one, it's like, well, that's, that's fascinating. Any, any, any intelligent life we would discover out there would be essentially the same as us and essentially being the key word, right? They would share a nature with us. Um, and so perhaps the advent of intelligent life wouldn't be like what we, you know, see about in the movies. Perhaps we would, we would be able to glimpse into a mirror, so to speak, and understand ourselves in a whole new way. Yeah. I think the question there is also, um, is there how many kinds of intelligence are there? Like, is there a sort of mathematical, computational, universal model? I think this is what the physicist David Deutsch sort of argues for, that there is a model of universal comp computation, and he ties that into the Turing machine and um, the way that computers work and how that is sort of like a necessary part of the laws of physics that we live under. Um, or if there's something else that would be intelligent but totally alien to us in the way that you would use the word something alien to you. Right. Uh, but I think it would be extremely fascinating if there was intelligent life in the universe that was a lot like us. Do you, do you think this is along the lines of the question of if there are aliens and they discovered pi, would it be 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Would they have our mathematics? I think the philosopher Daniel Dennett answered that question. They most likely do, but it might not be base 10. Right. Interesting. Um, you know any more about that? I'd be interested to hear about it. I don't know if this was serious or if this was a joke, but I'm remembering um, something about humans having 10 fingers and 10 toes. And like the way in which we learn to understand mathematics is like intuitively base 10. Right. You could imagine different limbs or different ways of learning to count that were um, a different base given the type of creature it is. Well, so the Babylonians, this is fascinating to me. The reason that they counted in base 12 is because they didn't count the thumb as a finger and they counted the segments of the four fingers and there's three segments of each of the four fingers and that's 12 segments. Oh, wow. I, I guess I wasn't off there then. I think that is what he said. That's, uh, that's fast. I mean, like that's, and, and that persists down, down to us, right? We have the 60 minute hour and all these other things. That was Babylonian. Yeah, yeah, because they, they counted the segmentation of the finger. It's like one, two, three, one, two, three again, <laughs> six. I've always wondered, and this is a total segue, so feel free to stop me if you want to stick on aliens. Um, but I've always wondered if we reconstructed the day into a different set of minutes and hours, and didn't even call them minutes or hours, if there was a different construction of time that would lead to better optimization of our time, better understanding of our timeline, understanding of weeks, months, and years. Um, and that would just be a more functional way of you know, slicing moments. So I, I don't know that I can respond directly to that, but I, I encountered this interesting thinker named uh, Sertillange. He was living in the early 20th century in France. He was a, a Dominican. And he wrote this book called The Intellectual Life. And he describes in it what it, what it means to have the vocation of an intellectual and how to live it and some practical tips and some, you know, really spiritual help, help you understand who you are kind of thing. And one of the things that he talks about in the organization of the day is that you really should think about the day as a 24-hour period from lunchtime to lunchtime. Hmm. And that you sleep actually in the middle of your day. And that the work that you do at night, the intellectual work and study that you do at night gets kind of you know, just as we know from modern science, like you sleep on it and you wake up in the morning and you solve the problem that you couldn't solve the night before. Um, therefore, kind of choosing to segment sleep as the integral part of the, like, so your work session is literally an hour before you go to bed, you're sleeping, and then the hour after you wake up, and it's like, that's your two hours of super intense study um, that are actually just one following the other. So, I mean, I think there are in interesting ways that we could reorganize our our time to yeah to optimize certain certain things right it's like we we do something we finish it before we go to bed we wake up and it's like okay what, what what's today's challenge yeah I've, I've always hated that about the way the school system works with like paper deadlines and things it's in no relationship to the type of problem you're working on and um the nature of the subject and the editing process that the subject would demand, but it's the paper is due on this day and you're late if you're past this moment. And I feel like it's such a, a, a limiting way of assigning intellectual work. Um, but, you know, there's, it also gets really fun when you get back into the physics of time too, 
with uh, relativity and mm. singular time. And then you have um, human perceptions of time. I'm totally forgetting the study I heard recently, but it was something like they had people work on problems and they told them that they could do it for, um, that they would have 10 minutes and they let one group go on for 15 and they told the other group to stop at five. And that gave them different perceptions of how hard the problem was. Mm. Uh, but they they all thought that that was 10 minutes, something along those lines. So like our calculus inside of our heads without um, clocks always being around is very different than our measurement of time. So you think that we think of time in terms of activity or problem, but then we have chosen to measure it in some objective way that doesn't at all relate to problems or tasks. Yeah, exactly. I think and it has a created tasks that happen to be good for the time, like shift work. Say that last part again. We created tasks that mapped on to our newly constructed version of time, like shift work. Yeah. I think there's just also the the more salient feature, which is that um, our enjoyment or interest in an activity relates to our perception of time. The old cliche, time flies when you're having fun. Um, but then there's also the dream research, which is that, um, you know, there's time dilation in dreams, and that has to do with uh, the speed at which our neurons fire when we're sleeping, as opposed to being awake. So you can take a 10-minute nap and feel like you had a 30-minute dream. Um, so even inside of our heads, uh, there's the ability to have an experience of something that's incredibly dilated or incredibly contracted. Um, that itself, I think, is very fascinating. It is. M maybe as a as a final point for our for a second installment of sheer tomfoolery, I I would like to propose kind of a thought experiment that I've had for a long time about time dilation and time, and I'd love to get your reaction to it. And maybe we can close there. Sure. Um, so I've always thought, I mean, I think what was really cool about the movie Interstellar was the experiment that it did with time dilation close to black holes. And, you know, I, when I was a little kid, I was all into physics. So it's like, it was really cool for me as, you know, a young adult to see that movie and like see the principles that I understood from, from physics, like kind of what they would look like in a drama. Um, and that all got me thinking about, um, you know, what if you constructed something like Halo, right? And you orbited a Halo around a black hole. One was close and one was further away. So they were experiencing times at two radically different speeds. And, um, you know, you on the center Halo, the one that was closer to the black hole is experiencing time slower relative to the outside observer, right? That's not in the gravitational field. So you put like the, the high class there. <laughs> and then you put the working class out on the, the Halo that was further away. And you had them designing and building all of these technologies. And every day for the people on the interior Halo, a ship would arrive bearing potentially hundreds of years worth of technological advancement. Oh, uh, that's very interesting. You know, I, 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 you could write such a cool science fiction novel about that. You certainly could. And then, I mean, I guess the only condition under which we might accept that would be one in which immortality is possible. Um, 
because the, one of the, at least for maybe a materialist, one of the regrets about dying is that you don't get to see the project of civilization go on. Right. So if there was the working class in the outer halo, wouldn't you be stealing something from them? Right. Uh, in right. that regard. And so um, that could be fun. I think that, what was it, Elysium? <laughs> could have the rebellion from the working class halo to the other halo. Right. <laughs> yeah, cool idea. Else. Right on. Right on. Well, hey, this has been, I think, a very successful installment of the series. I think we might have to continue sheer tomfoolery on. I hope so. I enjoy tomfoolery more than your average Tom. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, there's nothing nothing wrong with a bit of foolishness. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, let's keep it. Let's keep doing it, and um, hopefully, find some also interesting things to talk about in some of our other segments. Yeah, it would be great. I mean, I think there's a lot of cool topics to touch on. I mean, I'm super passionate about technology entrepreneurship, as you know, um, but I'm also an adamant philosopher and lover of literature. So, I mean, I think there's lots of things that we can riff on. Yeah, certainly. Let's let's uh, maybe shoot for weekly or something along those lines. Great. Well, to all of our viewers, hey, thanks so much for tuning in for this episode of Cryptosophy. This has been part of the Sheer Tomfoolery series. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Feel free to like, comment, subscribe, share on Facebook, tell everybody it sucks, whatever. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs>